We've been tracking the theme of the city in Scripture for a number of weeks. We have seen the city of man in its arrogant defiance of God, its false worship, and its hostility to God's people. We've also witnessed the unfolding story of the city of Jerusalem, the city God chose for the display of His glory and for the center of the true worship of His name. But Israel's spiritual infidelity resulted in the loss of Jerusalem, a tragic loss that we can hardly grasp the significance of it as we look at the centuries of time that God brought His people to this place, to Mount Zion, and to this temple here. First, the glory cloud of God's presence departed from the temple in Ezekiel's vision in the 6th century B.C. Then Jesus Christ coming the image of God's glory, but rejected by Israel, crucified just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Soon after the risen and ascended Christ poured out His Holy Spirit upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2 and scattered them, now not in judgment, but having fixed the language problem, sends them out uh, to the nations to proclaim the gospel. Then last week, Acts chapter 4, the early rumblings of the mission to spread the good news of God's glory to the cities of the nations. In obedience to Christ's command, going out with authority of the authority of Christ into all the cities of this world, to all peoples to hear that message, and also going out in anticipation of Christ's return. Now in coming weeks, I hope for us to consider the final chapters of the Bible story as it comes full circle back around to Jerusalem and and ends with the new Jerusalem, the city that God will reestablish as the seed of His eternal rule. But before we move to the end times, we must fill in a vital piece of the story that is to this point missing. We are called, indeed, to broadcast the glorious message of the gospel to the cities of the nations of this world. And yet, we must simultaneously lift our sights higher. We must orient our lives to God's eternal city as our true homeland and as our final destination. If we don't do this, the mission itself will be corrupted by a mere focus upon reaching people in these cities. But we must do so with a vision beyond those cities to our eternal home. The city of God is also a destiny beyond this age that should steer the orientation of our daily lives. The Christian life, let me say it this way, the Christian life is a journey of faith to the city beyond. The Christian life is a journey of faith to the city beyond. We must always see life in that perspective. This world is an away game for God's people. We are pilgrims journeying to another place. We have a mission here. We have a purpose here, but we're moving past it. We're moving somewhere beyond where we are always. We appreciate John Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, which stresses this truth, even in the wonder of just that title, Pilgrim, progressing, moving, always. In in the poetic preface to the book, Bunyan states his agenda this way, this book will make a traveler of thee. 
This book is oriented to make you a traveler by life focus. Then he subtly but brilliantly begins the allegory of Christian's journey to the celestial city with this opening description. It's subtle but so wise. He says, Christian was, quote, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house. Standing in a certain place with his face from his own house. That is, with his back to his home. With his face pointed away. That's exactly right. Follower of Jesus, we are called to live with our backs to our earthly homes and with our noses pointed toward the city beyond. We must live each day with the sense that we are not home yet with our affections and our loyalties rooted, not in the city that is here, but in the city that is to come. And I would say not even in the city of God, in the sense of the people of God serving the cause of the gospel in this world. As vital as that is, we never want to dismiss it. Nothing in this world is our final destiny. It's the city beyond where we're aiming. And in fact, we see this life better and we carry out the mission of the gospel better when we see that home that is beyond and live in its light. So we need to orient our lives toward this eternal city, the city that is beyond. As we do that, We turn to Hebrews chapter 11 today, if you'll make your way there, to stress this important aspect of the city theme, living by faith in what is to come. We turn to this classic passage in Hebrews 11. The thesis stated in the first verse, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we move down to verse 6 and we see that without faith it is impossible to please Him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I'd like us in the text to note two things here, to connect two things with verse 1 and verse 6. Notice in verse 1 that which is hoped for. That is, that is something to come that's not here yet. It is hoped for It is not seen. Put that together with verse 6 and the word reward. A reward is something you're looking forward to. It can be something you've received, obviously, depending on how you look at it. But a reward is you're serving in the interest of that which is to come. You're looking for the reward that is in the future. Putting that together, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That is, we have the confidence of that which is not yet seen. It's what is in the future in front of us. We're living in the light of that hope. We know that there is a reward in the future. And we live with that confidence. A life that pleases God indeed, verse 6 is a life that operates with a confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises. The author of Hebrews provides a number of illustrations here of people who please God by living in faith, living this way, living by faith, trusting in God's promises. We have Abel in verse 4 and Enoch in verse 5. We have Noah in verse 7. 
And I'd like to pick up the flow of thought as the author turns to the father of faith, Abraham, and his family. Now remember as we come to Abraham, looking at at verse 8 and picking up the account there, as we come to Abraham, we have to bring with us these two concepts of the promise of God, the promise of a land and the promise of an offspring. This just pervades the book of Genesis, and we need to bring that to the account as we consider the faith of Abraham, the land and the offspring. We notice first of all here in verses 8 through 10 a reference to Abraham, and the focus falls in these three verses on the land. Abraham's faith and the promised land, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now verse 8, Abraham obeyed God, obviously drawing us back to Genesis chapter 12. God called Abraham, we remember, to leave every earthly security in his homeland, the city of Ur in Mesopotamia, and God called Abraham to take a long journey to a land Abraham had never seen. In fact, he didn't even know where it was. He did not know where God was taking him. But he obeyed when he was called out, to a place, a place he would inherit, verse 8, the middle of the verse, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now that's not how we like for life to work, is it? We prefer to obey God when we know exactly what he's doing and we know exactly where he's taking us. Faith is not agreeing with what God says. It's not agreeing with what God does. Ultimately, faith is obeying Him in the dark. As Luther put it, it's obeying the naked voice of God. God does not spend His ministry to us as our shepherd explaining all of His ways. He does not relate to us asking our approval. He's God. He sends us where we need to go, and faith is saying, I'll go. The naked voice of God. Imagine that you're traveling to a remote area with a friend in the car, and there's no cell phone service. You're pretty far out. And uh, there's not a lot of services out here. There's not even a lot of houses out here. And your friend starts to get really nervous and says, I, we're going to run out of gas here. And from what I'm seeing, there's not a lot of help. Uh, I, I'm really getting nervous about this. But you say to your friend, don't worry, I've been here before. 
In fact, I've been on this very road many times in the past, and there is a gas station about three miles up, and from the gauge, we've got enough gas to get there. I know where it's at. I've been there before. It's all fine. Now, your friend has two options. It's very simple. I can believe and trust. Your friend can trust you and say, we're going to be all right and relax or question you. Worry, anxiety. Are you sure this gas station is up there? Is this really going to work out for us? It's just two options there. What would you think of a friend who spent the whole trip from that point to the gas station questioning whether you know what you're doing? Wondering if you've been here before. Wondering if you're going to really be okay. Fretting, questioning your judgment. What would you think? That's exactly how we so consistently treat God. When it comes to the future, God's already there. He knows exactly what is on the road ahead of you, and He has said, I've got this. I've been there. I know where we're going. And yet, how often do we question Him? We need to trust that He will meet us at every point along the way with all that we need. And this is what Abraham does. He journeys out, not knowing where he was going, but knowing God knew. And that was enough. He rested in this call to journey on. Verse 9. By faith he went. To live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He went. He obeyed. He went. Verse 8. Active obedience to God's call. And he went to a foreign land. That is, he was a resident alien in status. And his housing indicated that. He was living in tents. That's hard evidence that God's promise to inherit this land was not realized in Abraham's lifetime. If he owned the promised land, if this was his possession and everyone knew it, you put up a house. You create something that's more stable. He's a resident alien living in tents his whole life. Now, tents have stakes. They don't have foundations. Foundations are permanent. Stakes are meant and designed to be pulled up and to be pounded in some other place. During some of our summer mission trips, we've found housing in tents. And maybe you do that in the summer from time to time. You go tenting generally when we pull up those stakes, we're looking forward to getting back to the place that has foundations and a real roof over the head that doesn't leak, right? Tenting's a wonderful thing in recreation. Living in tents your whole life, this was an evidence that Abraham never realized the promise. The promised land, I'm giving it to you, God says, but he lives in tents the whole time, his whole life. Always a temporary arrangement the question the author then asks is how or maybe we could say why what motivated abraham to live this way to endure such hardship without receiving god's promise verse 10 is the answer for the answer is 
He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was seeing past the circumstances of his life to this greater city beyond this life. Now we don't know how conscious Abraham was of this city. I don't know that I could fill in the blanks there and say this is precisely what he was thinking as he considered this city to come. We have much more revelation about it than Abraham had. What we do know is he did not live for the security of man's city. Abraham lived in order to please God. He was looking forward as he saw his circumstances, as he lived in tents, he was looking forward to this city whose designer, whose builder was the Lord. This meant that his faith united him to the historical stream of God's people headed to this eternal city. He's looking at life through this lens of the city to come. At verse 11, the account shifts to Sarah's faith and the promised offspring. So we look at Land, now the emphasis on God's promise of the offspring. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah was in fertile and well past childbearing age when God promised to give her and Abraham a son. And with Sarah, God established something of a paradigm in which infertile women were chosen by God to perpetuate the lineage of Messiah. It's it's like we can see the characteristic brush strokes of the artist. He continues to choose women that can't have children to be part of the line of Messiah. To be part of this promise of the offspring that started in Genesis 3.15 and has now come through Abraham. He keeps choosing these kinds of women. And as we look at those characteristic brush strokes, he's up to something big here, isn't he? It's pointing us forward to our emphasis even here this morning. God using this pattern to prepare his people for the incarnation of Christ. Mary was beyond infertile. Mary was a virgin. I mean, she was fertile, but you know what I mean. She, 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 th- this is a whole nother category. This isn't just a woman who can't bear children. This is a woman who has never known a man. God prepares us that as He is bringing the story forward to Messiah, He chooses these unlikely women. An unlikely account. But the storyline of miraculous conception beginning here with Sarah in Genesis. Long past any hope of conception, she gave herself into Abraham's arms believing that God would keep His promise and enable her to conceive. You could fill in the human details here and we won't go there today. But God said to this woman who had never been able to bear a child and then to this woman who was now way past any thought of it, you're going to have a child. And she believes. 
She trusts what God says looking to the future and knowing that God will be there to answer. And she acts in faith. Verse 12. The conclusion being that Sarah in her faith, Abraham in his faith, from this one man and him as good as dead, that is, he's, he's had children after Sarah. So Genesis 25. So it's, it's not that he was incapable of having children, but in his relationship with Sarah, as good as dead, from this one were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. In that figure of speech, a massive number of people are born from this woman and this man. And it is their faith that leads to their obedience that leads to the fulfillment of God's purpose. Abraham's faith and the promised land. He trusted the naked voice of God. Sarah's faith and the promised offspring. They trusted the naked voice of God. We will act today with a confidence that God will keep his word and fulfill this in the future. Third. The patriarch's faith in the eternal city. The author of Hebrews now pans back and summarizes, encouraging his readers to live by faith and seek the city beyond this realm. These, he says, verse 13, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Verse 13, these all died in faith. That is Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, all died believing God's promise. Believing his promise about the land, believing his promise about the offspring. Death did not kill their faith either. Their faith took them through death to God. But death did overtake the progress. They died with the fulfillment of God's promises still on the road ahead of them. And this is the amazing thing. This is the thing the author draws our attention to. God said this would take place. It's going to take place in the future. They died before they realized the fulfillment. And they continued to believe. This meant for them then that life on earth was an away game. They admitted they were strangers and exiles here. They put down literally, but in a sense also figuratively, they put down stakes. They didn't dig out foundations. They were passing through as pilgrims. They did not live as if this world is a place where believers' dreams are realized. And I ask us, Eden Baptist Church, I ask you as an individual who knows Christ as Savior, what about this? 
Do we live as if this world is a place where a believer's dreams are realized? Do people see us and say, you live just pretty much like everybody else. This is where dreams are fulfilled. Or do we live as people who know the promises of God are yet future and that's what I'm living for? There's practical implications to this, and they are so many, just a few to think about. Number one, you don't really care that much about your bucket list. There are people that have this bucket list thing, these things they got to do before they die, and they're like in depression as they're watching them not get ticked off of the, of the list because they're realizing, I'm going to die before I get it all done. I knew a man. I knew a man who cried every New Year's Eve because he still was not a millionaire. He loved money and he couldn't get it. His dreams were only to be realized in this life. And it was a joy and a wonder to see him come eventually to Christ and to not cry anymore at New Year's Eve. Because his focus became beyond. Giving. This this whole area and discipline of life is just opened up for us. When this life is the only place where your dreams are realized or you're living that way... Money is something you've got to hold on to. You've got to consume for yourself and you're really stingy about seeing it going anywhere because this is it. You only get such a, an amount and you, you're only going to enjoy what you've spent here or maybe assigned to something out there that you, you like. But, but to be free with money, to, to be giving and generous as a person, this just opens up a whole different world for us. Because this world's not our home. This isn't where the dream is realized. Another implication is fellowship. It's far more important for us. It's far more important that we have a body with which to walk because we understand one another in a world where we're strangers and aliens. And that's the beauty as we see our young people come to that place of saying, these are my people. The church, that's my people. There's an understanding and a perspective that this life isn't it. We're moving somewhere else. And there's a need for fellowship. Another implication. The epistle, the epistle of Diognetus was an early Christian apologetic work and it noted this wonder for God's people. Every foreign country is a homeland and every homeland a foreign country. That beautiful, every homeland is, every foreign country is a homeland, and every homeland is a foreign country. There's a perspective. When we see the city beyond, when we live for the city beyond, there's a perspective that allows us to go into any nation, any culture, anywhere, and to say, I'll make this home because it's not the end of the equation. I'll camp out here temporarily. As God has led me here. And we can be at peace with that. And on the other hand, we don't look at our home here and hold on to it. We don't cling to it for all that we're worth. 
because this isn't it. This isn't the home for which we're living. We can hold this earth loosely if we carry this perspective of faith. The fact that they were headed to a city beyond is supported in verse 15 by their own life. They are, verse 14, they, are, uh, they speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland because if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, they left the security of their city in Mesopotamia. They would have been able to return to Ur if their orientation was ease in this world. If this is it, then you go back to Ur because this tenting thing for all these days is not working out so well. And we're held to be here as aliens and strangers. We don't have the rights that others have. Let's go back to Ur. They didn't go back. Their back was to their home. Their face was to their eternal home. And it directed the way that they lived. Ultimately, it was the city of God on the road ahead that kept them returning to the city of man that kept them from returning to the city of man that was in the rearview mirror. It was that which was before them that kept them from turning around and going back. Verse 16. Here's the conclusion, just at this point. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. They desire a better country. There's the conclusion. The present tense desire probably meant to convey a habitual focus in their daily lives. Their desire was always... to move to that heavenly country, that city that is beyond. Their affection for the heavenly country, in fact, verse 16b, pleased the Lord. Not ashamed to be called their God. We use the idiom as parents sometimes, I have children, I'm proud of you. We, We don't mean one thing that way. We do mean another. I'm proud of you. I find pleasure in you. I am thankful for what you are doing or who you've become or something like that. That's what God is saying here as our Heavenly Father. I'm proud of them. I find pleasure in these children who look to the fulfillment of my promise beyond and lived in this life as if that promise would be realized. I find pleasure in them. John Owen said, God's owning of believers as His and of Himself to be their God is an abundant recompense for all the hardships which they undergo in this pilgrimage. In other words, every trial and heartache that we face as God's people, it is all worth it if we can know that we have the smile of God. For those that know Him, That is a value. The smile of God, the pleasures of God, our pleasures of Him and His being pleased with us, that relationship is greater than any goal in this earth. Anything for which we strive, that is the ultimate, the pleasure of God. And the passage ends with this assurance that He has indeed for such people prepared for them a city. You notice that it's past tense. The preparation is done. He's prepared for them a city. And they are in it. 
They are enjoying that presence of God, that gathering of those who have entered into eternity, into the presence of the Lord. I don't think the reference here is just simply to heaven. We'll get into that more in the weeks to come. But it certainly is the city, that place where God is. In His presence. It is His presence. It is our relationship with Him that drives us through everything else that we see in this world. The preparation is done and they are there. He's prepared for them a city. That's not part of the text, but let me just by way of application add this fourth idea as we contemplate what we've seen here. And that is our faith and the pleasure of God. Let's focus on that for a few moments. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we read that without faith it is impossible to please the Lord. We also see that pleasure here in verse 16. He's not ashamed to be called their God. He's proud of the fact that we are His children as we trust Him. Now, that doesn't mean that without faith it's impossible to please God. It means that with faith we earn God's favor. That somehow our goodness in that is seen as merit that gains the approval of God. Don't read it in those terms. It means rather that it pleases the Lord when we refuse to be driven by the earthly goals and the short-sighted fears of man's city. Only He can give us the strength, the spiritual capacities to in fact trust Him. So it's not earning His favor through this means, but it is trusting Him and obeying Him that enhances our pleasure in Him and His pleasure in us. It pleases the Lord when we are driven by that obedience of what God says and are confident in the future that God has promised. And we could choose so many possible examples of this in Scripture. But let me just draw our attention to two, depending on your relationship with Christ. What is it that God says that I must trust, that I must believe? How is it that I can enter relationship with Him in confidence on the basis of what He has said? One thing that He has said about the future is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We'll not take the time, don't have the opportunity to fill in all that is there. And all that is assumed beyond this succinct statement. I just want to draw your attention to this point. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When we look at the Word of God and what He says is coming in the future, this is one of those ideas that we need to grasp and believe. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is utterly vital that we do so wisely, that we prepare for that day. It's coming. And there may be some among us here today, you're living as if it's not coming. You're not really worried about it. You're not concerned about it. You don't think about it. You don't know how you'd be prepared for that day because probably you really don't believe it's going to happen. 
as you come to faith in Christ, you will take the step that says it's going to happen. And I know on the word of God, when he says we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that means me. I will have an accounting before the bar, before Christ. And in fact, this should then lead us really to a sense of fear. Perhaps even rightly so of terror. Because we realize that standing before Christ in judgment, I'm not ready. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to handle that situation. This is why we gather each Lord's Day and sing. Because there's hope. There's joy to know the Word of God will prepare you for that. Not on the basis of your good deeds and your family name or anything of the like, but on the basis of the price that Jesus Christ paid for your sin. Paying the price, taking your place, so that as you trust Him and put your confidence in His forgiveness of sin, you can stand in His authority. You can stand robed in His righteousness, not your own. There's a way there, and we'd love to point you to it. There is such hope in the gospel. But this is a future you've got to come to recognize. As a sinner, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Or you can stand there as a forgiven sinner. Acting in faith is acting on what God has said and trusting Him. For those that know Christ as Savior, just one example. How do I live this life? Or what, how, how does it change the way that I live this life when I am living for the city beyond? Here's a promise. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice that as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are not yet realized. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are the things that are transient? All kinds of trouble. All kinds of heartache, Paul is writing about. But this light momentary affliction, whatever we are going through in this veil of tears and heartache, as sinners harm sinners, as sin destroys life, as trouble visits us day in and day out, as we're going through that, he says, in comparison, it is light and momentary compared to the glory that is to come. God working all things together for good to a glorious end. To live in the face of the trials of this life as if nothing but disaster awaits us on the road ahead discredits this word of God. Just one example. But it's saying, in the face of the circumstances that I'm now in, I'm going to live as if God is not on the road ahead. His promises will not be realized. This will not turn out for good. This will turn out for bad. And I live that way. That's living without faith. 
Faith takes whatever I'm facing and it looks at the promise of God and says, in the future, he'll be there. He's already there. He's already awaiting. And he's already using what I'm suffering, the trials that I'm facing, to change me and to glorify me ultimately. Hebrews eleven sixteen. the city is our ultimate home. And when that city is our ultimate hope, we believe and we act accordingly. And I challenge you today to consider this. How is it that living in faith of the city to come will change the way that I live here? This is one area, how we handle suffering. But it is to be worked out in so many other areas of our life. Let me illustrate from the life of Hudson Taylor. He's a man, I think, that in this situation lived this out. The city beyond changed the way that he looked at the city he lived in. Missionary to China, as many of us would know, but in the year 1900, the Empress Dowager of China unleashed a massacre against foreigners as part of the Boxer Rebellion. Now listen to this. Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission suffered the martyrdom of 58 adult missionaries. They were killed. 58 and 21 of their children. All died in this rebellion. These missionaries had gone to China to bring the life-giving message of Jesus Christ to the Chinese people. That's why they were there. They came in love. It was a mission of mercy. And 79 souls were sacrificed to the raging attack of Satan's offspring. In 1901, the next year, the Allied nation sued China for compensation, which the China Inland Mission was awarded. Hudson Taylor refused all compensation for his agency he refused every penny whatever they have that's living by faith you have lost lives you have lost property a lot of property was lost and money is placed in your hands to replace the property taken and in some weird way in a incomplete but to respond to the lives lost And you say, we will take none of it. Why do you say that? Because you're living by faith in a city beyond. You're serving another homeland. You're not serving just this life and even looking at it as as a simple matter of money and compensation. You're saying there's a bigger cause beyond. Just a one decision. But living by faith transforms the way you think about loss. It transforms the way you think about death and how you think about money. It transforms how you think about failure and success, love and criticism, leisure, and every aspect of life. All of it is transformed when we see the city beyond. It's when we get locked into, I must have all my dreams here, that we begin to lose our way. We begin to see this life just like everyone around us and we no longer shine as light in a dark world. May God find pleasure in us 
as we strive to be a church journeying by faith to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And I would encourage us to talk through these matters. How does it change the way that I live? How does it bring stability? How does it direct me forward? How do I make decisions about all the pieces of life that's radically distinct because I'm serving not this city, not man's city, but the city beyond? I'm a person journeying to another homeland. And this is what it looks like. What is that? Let's talk about it today. Let's encourage each other with this concept. Let's think by way of conviction and prayer, God, how can I set my sights on the city to come? And what difference will it make? Let's prayerfully ask that. Lord, we praise You for our Savior who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. He endured the cross. He endured the suffering, the pain, the sorrow of it, the shame of it, the indecency and indignity of it all, the injustice of it. He suffered it all for the joy set before Him. I pray that you would teach us to honor our Savior, to follow in His stead, and to endure for the joy set before us. I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior and that you would permit them to see the glories of His sacrifice in our place and His resurrection life. For those of us who do, I pray that you would teach us to live by faith. And I pray that every mission that we see every heartache that we face, every goal that we set would all be colored by and oriented to the city beyond. We praise you for the promise that you are preparing for us a home. And I pray that we would live each day as if that home is indeed being prepared. Bring conviction to us by your Spirit where we are living simply for ourselves for ease, for this life. Where we are living in a way that might confuse the world to think that we believe with them that this earth is the place where our dreams are realized. I pray that you would strengthen us to make changes, to repent of our sin and to move forward in the days ahead with a focus on the eternal city. Lead us to do this for the glory of your name, we pray. And we bring this request before your feet, pleading that you will do this work in us by your Spirit. Make us people of faith. Guide us to be people of faith. And I ask that you'd find your pleasure in us as we trust your word and live as if the future you've promised is indeed awaiting us. Help us to that end, we pray through Christ. Amen.